This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which is in fact our fifth program pre-election 2020. The election is on the 3rd of November this year, as you possibly are well aware. And we have a lot of things we want to cover between now and then. Almost all of them have to do with COVID-19 and the mishandling of that pandemic here in the United States, courtesy of Donald J. Trump. We hope you caught last week's program with our interview with Stephen J. Harper, author and professor of law at Northwestern University. His timelines related to the COVID-19 pandemic, which are on the BillMoyers.com site, we cannot recommend highly enough. And I hasten to add when I say that, that is not because if you go to BillMoyers.com at the present time, the latest addition to Mr. Harper's timelines would be our Radio Parallax interview of last week. Mr. Millen and I are extremely pleased to see the work that we do show up on Bill Moyers' website. Bill Moyers is an icon and, and, frankly, a bit of a national treasure. And Stephen Harper's timelines are, from start to finish, superb. And we're sure that between now and Election Day, he is going to have many meaningful additions to his series of timelines. And, as suggested on last week's program, we are keen to have him back in a week or two. Although I'm tempted to start off this show by updating where we were a week ago and where we are now as regards COVID-19, I just think I need to take a slight, slight detour from that at the moment. We've been a little desperate for humor on this program of late, and although Ms. Merlin suggests I do not provide an example of how desperate we've gotten, I think I'm going to plow ahead anyway. Now, as reported on this program and in a lot of places, there was some concern months ago that your pets might harbor COVID-19. There was at least one dog I know of somewhere in Asia that was detested positive. So our item is this. The World Health Organization has now announced that dogs are not a significant risk for contracting COVID-19 and passing it to their owners. Therefore, dogs previously held in quarantine can now be released. And just to clarify that, the World Health Organization who let the dogs out? Must I? Yes. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? Who, yes, uh, some might note that, that another casualty of this pandemic has been the humor content of this radio program. But hold on, we're not done. Someone sent a meme a week or so ago that said, well, it turns out that Trump apparently could shoot 205,000 people on Pennsylvania Avenue and his followers would still vote for him. And here's something we stumbled into accidentally. We stress on this program that fact-checking is important. You should, first of all, you know, try to be sure of your sources. And if something comes up that's a little sketchy, do some research to find out if it seems valid. Now, I was not aware that uh, a while back, in fact, in late May... An item appeared in several, uh, I guess, blogs that referred to a conversation that took place in a Trump briefing. Apparently, they were talking about the rates of testing in the U.S. and elsewhere. And the quote from multiple sources was that Trump, during that meeting, asked, and when you say per capita, there's many per capitas. It's like per capita relative to what? 
This was fact-checked by both the truthorfiction.com website and Snopes, and they both judged it true. This is part of that press conference back around May 20th that the president stomped out of when CBS News White House correspondent Weijia Jiang asked Trump about his claim that the U.S. was doing far better in testing than any other country. Jiang, who was Chinese-American, continued asking, why does it matter? Why is it a global competition to you? If every day Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day. At that point, Trump replied, and I think we mentioned this on the program, that, well, he said, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? And if you ask him that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Trump then tried to call another reporter, and Jiang followed up with, sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? And, of course, that, the assumption was that it was because she herself was Chinese. But Trump said, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm just saying anyone would ask me a nasty question like that. Anyway, after he said per capita relative to what, he added, but you can look at just about any category and we're really at the top, meaning positive on a per capita basis too, which it turns out is not true. And yet in in another item, which can I think only be considered, I'd have to say high comedy, it turns out that Donald Trump's campaign manager, the larger than life Brad Parscale, well, Brad ran into a little bit of trouble the last couple of days. Before we relate that, let's, let's back up a little bit to what The Economist was saying about Parscale in the September 19th issue. As is so often with Mr. Trump, it is easy to be distracted by the outrageousness of his affairs. In May, the Trump campaign manager, Brad Parscale, announced he had spent nearly three years constructing a political Death Star, and he was about to start pressing fire for the first time. Two months later, The Economist goes on with Mr. Trump trailing by 10 points and the Death Star leaking allegations of mismanagement and extravagance. Mr. Parscale was out on his ear. Our understanding was they retained him as the web guru of the campaign. But The Economist reports that he apparently had issued contracts worth about $40 million to companies he owned. The wife and girlfriend of the president's two adult sons were collecting 180000 a year for their cheerleading services. The Death Star had spent almost $60 million on legal fees, much of which related to Trump's scandals, such as the president's battle to keep his tax record secret, and were only tenuously related to the campaign. So maybe Death Star isn't the best piece of music we could attach to. So maybe this item actually requires a different Star Wars piece of music. Yeah, we think that may be a little more appropriate. In fact, well, it definitely has to be more appropriate in the wake of what's happened in the last couple of days. Apparently, I haven't read the story in detail, but apparently Mr. Parscale was taken down by the police and placed in protective custody. Supposedly, he was threatening his wife and waving a gun around the house and saying all sorts of strange things, which caused her, my understanding, wearing a swimsuit and showing bruises to go down the street seeking someone that could help her, whereupon she uncovered a real estate agent driving the neighborhood about to show a house. And I gather that the real estate agent acted as a good Samaritan and then called 911. Now, credit to Mr. McMillan, he was then picked up wearing only pants 
no socks and shoes, no shirt out in the front yard, claimed everything was just fine, but the police decided they better take him into custody anyway. And my understanding is they're looking into the fact that they may want to, uh, well, let's say put into protective custody the arsenal that he has in his house as well. We're not sure what this means to the Trump campaign, but we're going to guess that it means things aren't going well and that Brad is under a little undue stress. Now, I did not see the video on this. Miss Merlin did, but he highly recommends that you check it out. Observe the six foot eight par scale beer in hand trying to talk his way out of this with the police. We'd like to say that we wish him well and hope he'll get back on the campaign trail real soon. But that would be just, well, a lie. And since we're trying to keep things a little on the light side as we start this program, why don't we go to, at this point, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of course, wouldn't you know it, for today's program, all three items have to do with... COVID-19, one way or another. We note that according to the week, it was a good week last week for the Pentagon, which reportedly funneled nearly $1 billion, with a B, allocated by Congress for the production of personal protective equipment to defense contractors. Let us start by noting that according to the Washington Post, it was a good week last week for the Pentagon which evidently funneled nearly $1 billion allocated by Congress for the production of personal protective equipment to defense contractors. The money, part of $3 trillion in aid intended for emergency spending, was instead used to produce jet engines, drone technology, body armor, and fabric for soldiers' uniforms. Democrats called for an investigation. These facts were uncovered by somebody checking out public records, by the way. Democrats call this unconscionable, the fact that pandemic money was rerouted while the country still faces a severe shortage of N95 masks and other PPE. The Pentagon countered the expenditures were not only legal, but necessary to protect ailing industries and companies that are vital to national security. You know, when you have to start off your argument by saying, well, well, first of all, what we did was legal, you're probably headed in the wrong direction. And according to The Week, it was a a bad week last week for Anglophones, with new research suggesting that English speakers may transmit coronavirus more readily than speakers of many other languages. The key factor could be English's dependence upon the spittle-projecting aspirated consonants, P, K, and T. Well, it does make a certain amount of sense, because as I point my mouth at a microphone right now, there is, in fact a bit of foam rubber draped around the mic so that the the popping peas do not create plosives during recording. And finally, it was surely an ugly week last week for defense, as people often yell at sports events. In this case, the sport was minor league German soccer. And in this instance, we're referring to the fact that the coach of Ripdorf the minor league soccer team in question, ordered his players to keep six feet of social distance away from players of the SV Holdenstedt II, who apparently got recently exposed to the coronavirus. Now, we do understand the coach's sentiment here, but we do have to report the final score was Ripdorf 0, 
Hodenstadt, 37. Although I do have to confess, a soccer game that had a 37-0 score is the kind of game I'd like to watch. And to be honest, I'd like to see that very game. And yes, if you're listening, Paul Dorn, I said it. There's a soccer game I'd like to watch. Things may get progressively less amusing as we go forward from here. Oh, it's not a particularly grim item to note that the citizens of Barbados are set to remove Britain's Queen Elizabeth as its head of state next year. Said Governor General Sandra Mason, delivering a speech written by Prime Minister Mia Motley, Barbadians want a Barbadian head of state. It does appear that the anti-monarchist forces that have agitated for the country to become a republic are going to get their wish next year. And how about this item from The Week? Apparently, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was offered a presidential pardon by Donald Trump on the condition that he helped cover up Russia's involvement in the 2016 hacking of Democratic Party emails. Assange's lawyer told the London court this last week. Assange is currently battling extradition to the U.S. where he faces life in prison on espionage charges. The lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, said she witnessed then-Representative Dana Rohrabacher and Trump associate Charles Johnson making the offer in an August 2017 meeting at the Ecuadorian Embassy in London where Assange was holed up to evade arrest. Rohrabacher and Johnson stated President Trump had approved of the meeting. This was then disputed by James Lewis, lawyer for the U.S. government in the extradition case. But you know, I'm going to go with my gut on this one. I, I think that happened. And down in Florida, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has said that he'd raise $16 million to pay the court fines and fees that blocked almost 32,000 Floridians with felony convictions from voting this November. The contributions would come from individuals and foundations, not Bloomberg's own fortune, will add to $7 million raised separately by the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition from 44,000 contributors across the country. As you may or may not know, a 2018 referendum known as Amendment 4 returned voting rights to Florida felons, but a year later, Republican lawmakers passed a law prohibiting them from voting before paying all the fines and penalties they may have accrued. Thus, almost 800,000 felons in Florida could be disenfranchised by that law, which was upheld this month in federal court. Now, when our conversation with Stephen Harper last week, the question of Trump's mental status did get briefly discussed. And in the wake of that, I was curious to see a letter that appeared in The Economist, which had published a piece on the challenges of dementia. A man from Louisiana wrote the magazine to say, So signs of Alzheimer's were detected in Ronald Reagan's speech patterns long before his diagnosis. An interesting footnote to this is provided by Oliver Sacks, who, in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, published in 1985, Sachs relayed the story of a ward of aphasia patients who were moved by a speech made by Ronald Reagan, apparently mainly to laughter in the way of responses. He attributed this not to syntax in the speech, but to something wrong in Reagan's tones and cadences. Oliver Sachs concluded that his aphasic patients were undeceived and undeceivable by mere words. And yeah, I'd like to see the reaction of that ward to a Trump speech, wouldn't you? (laughs) And speaking of Trump, as we undeniably now are, this week's copy of The Week magazine published a series of pieces surrounding the relationship of Donald Trump to Facebook, something we have been 
very disturbed about for quite some time. I think it's worth quoting a few of these. Writing in Bloomberg Businessweek, Sarah Freer and Kurt Wagner said, an alliance of convenience has been forged between the White House and the world's largest social network. Facebook executives often point out that the company was seen as overly friendly to Democrats during the Obama years, and the right continues to level accusations of anti-conservative bias. But employees have grown increasingly outspoken about a pattern of ignoring misinformation spread on the platform by President Trump and supporters. Facebook made rules against giving incorrect information about how to vote, but then froze when Trump actually put it to the test last May. Facebook's head of policy, Joel Kaplan, vetoed a tweak of the newsfeed algorithm after traffic began to drop off for right-wing news outlets like Fox and Breitbart. More recently, Facebook seemed to back off its voter registration efforts this summer after Republicans complained, reducing a two-day July 4th promotion across all its platforms to a one-day push on Facebook alone. In writing in BuzzFeedNews.com, Craig Silverman noted that Facebook's closeness with governments aren't confined to the U.S. Sophie Zhang, a former Facebook data scientist, wrote a 6,000-word memo filled with concrete examples of government officials manipulating the platform to sway political opinion. Zhang, who turned down a $64,000 severance to avoid signing a non-disparagement agreement, described a lack of desire from senior leadership to protect democratic processes. Anyway, we don't have time to go into it in much detail, but we highly recommend that BuzzFeedNews.com article. Sophie Zhang says she has blood on her hands. She has revealed new information about a large-scale fake account network used to amplify and manipulate information about COVID-19. Gee, what a surprise. We reported on this program a couple weeks back that a survey of the most influential websites that were pushing to reopen the economy found that 82% of them among the 50 most read accounts were in fact bots. And the suspicion was that these bots originated in Russia. As long as we're doing some plugging, we need to also plug the social dilemma, which explains in great detail how it is these, the world's largest corporations operating out of Silicon Valley depend, according to their business model, upon selling you and me to advertisers. And since they are the world's richest, most powerful corporations, it's rather unlikely they're going to change that business model anytime soon. Which prompted a response about Facebook and Trump from Pat Garofalo in NBCNews.com. She noted that Facebook's business model is the real problem here. Sensationalized content is how Facebook makes money. The longer you stay on Facebook, the more ads you see, the more money it pockets. The most effective way to get you to stay online is to hook you on addictive content such as conspiracy theories and partisan rages. So Facebook has little incentive to curb extremist groups. As with many of the problems Facebook causes, potential solutions run up against its profit motive. And to circle back to that idea of Russian influence of the American electorate, we highly recommend that you check out Kill Chain, a documentary about the manipulation of voting machines. This has been one of our pet peeves as long as we've been doing this show, since 2002 anyway. It has appeared clear to us that voting machines have stolen many elections in the U.S. over the past couple decades. 
And although this documentary, Kill Chain, is, well, it's, it's a bit of a downer, it needs to be watched, I think, by everyone. One part that sticks in my mind were all of these authorities from the electronic voting machine companies and, and certain officials in the U.S. that claimed these voting machines are very safe because they're never on the Internet. The documentary then shows that, well, yes, in fact, they sometimes are on the Internet. They also showed how officials would explain to us that, you know, there's no way anybody can get a hold of these machines and manipulate them. That, that, that's, that's silly. But in fact, the documentary shows how uh, the Finnish computer expert who was looking into all of this drove to a recycling center in Ohio where hundreds of the machines were being stored. He bought three for $75 a pop, took it to the University of Michigan, where they then showed in detail how insecure the device was. And it was freely admitted that these machines have been breached many times in the past, and that it is very conceivable that certain foreign actors, some in Russia, some in India, have proven that they've been able to seize control of the election software. There's a guy in India that apparently has full control over the vote count in the state of Alaska. To which I would add, I guess it's a good thing that Alaska isn't going to be critical to this upcoming election. Anyway, kill chain. Worth checking out. I think I'm going to try and push most of the COVID stuff in our second segment today and do a roundup on other items out there, although it seems like everything in the world still relates back to COVID. We haven't followed this battle over TikTok very closely because I don't care about TikTok, although I realize there's a big controversy here. But I did stick on this little item in The Economist that noted that Oracle felt that it had a good shot at gaining TikTok because of the fact of the there's a great deal of rapport between Larry Ellison, Oracle's founder and chairman, and Donald Trump. Ellison has hosted fundraisers for Trump. And evidently, Oracle's boss, Safra Katz, served on Trump's transition team back in 2016. If you don't think there's a, a very unhealthy alliance between Silicon Valley and the White House, dear listener, it, I would say you're apparently not paying enough attention. We also don't have a great deal to say about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the much-beloved liberal conscience of America's Supreme Court. She, of course, died on September 18th at age 87. But there is one thing I think that has to be said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is that considering the fact that she had colon cancer in 1999, followed by lung cancer, and two rounds of pancreatic cancer, by the time she got to her 80th birthday during the Obama administration, she probably should have taken the advice of people who suggested that she retire so that President Obama could name her replacement. She shrugged it off and vowed to stay as long as I can do the job full steam. Well, that ended on September 18th, and because she was not replaced by Barack Obama, she's about to be replaced by Donald J. Trump. And no, we don't understand how it is that the rules of the Senate make this pretty much a sure thing, but that's what we keep hearing. They need a majority of senators to vote for her, there are 53 Republicans expected to do so, except for Murkowski and Collins, which have said they won't do so before the election, but that still leaves them with 51. Mitt Romney at one point said he wasn't going to vote till after the inauguration, but being Mitt Romney, i.e. something of a slimy weasel who can't be trusted to adhere to anything he says, he subsequently reversed himself. Of course, even if he had stuck to his guns, there'd still be 50 with Mike Pence waiting in the wing if they needed 51. 
She may have been a wonderful human being, and she certainly did a lot of good on the Supreme Court, but she dropped the ball on this one. And frankly, we're not that happy about it. Perhaps it all would have been fine if she lived four more months, but the fact is, she didn't. And it appears that America may now have to pay a steep price for that. And here's a little item that I guess provides a bit of comedy relief, although it's, 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 it's pretty dark comedy. As reported by CNN, last Friday, the Trump administration argued against a challenge to its 2020 census plans by saying the Constitution requires a count, but doesn't say it must be accurate. Justice Department attorney Alexander Sverdlov, who we presume you know, made his argument and kept a straight face, told a federal judge in California, it cannot be the case that accuracy in and of itself establishes some sort of, uh, is established in the enumeration clause. He claimed that the National Urban League and other groups challenging the administration's plan to end the counting of the entire U.S. population in September rather than October are inventing a new reading of the Constitution. Their argument, he said, is that the enumeration clause contains a heretofore unknown standard of accuracy they cannot really be measured by the courts. Sverdlov acknowledged that the Census Bureau has set its own internal metrics and standards, but that doesn't mean that they're judicially enforceable. Yeah, first of all, what we did was legal. I, I think this just shows the respect for, for law that exists in the current administration of Donald J. Trump. Yeah, the Constitution says we have to do a count. Doesn't mean it has to be an accurate count. So what's the big deal? And Mr. Miller does point out that the president himself has noted that, you know, sometimes counting things up, well, it can make you look bad. And who wants that? Now, we hate to kind of break down the fourth wall, as it were, on this program and show, well, for example, that we are actually recording this on Tuesday evening. But it turns out at the moment we're doing so, the debates have just begun. So, so we're going to take a, a short break and see what's going on there on the television screen between Joe Biden, and Beelzebub. Well, that may be a little unfair comparing him to Satan. Let's instead go with the great cockwomble. If you haven't heard that word before, you can look it up during the break, which we're going to take now. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Please stick around. <laughs> 